You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, again, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we ask for your help. We pray that... uh, This sermon would come alive to us in terms of a a kind of manifesto, a guide for living the life that you've called us to. We pray for this uh, time now together. We ask for the sense of your presence, your Holy Spirit guiding our understanding. Uh, Together we give you thanks in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, Frankly, I've tried to pick something that was in continuity with the sermon that some of you just heard and with what I've been concentrating on uh, this week in Mark 8. You see the the sort of the thesis line at the top, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So the question that um, was in my mind, especially on Monday of this week, was how does the Sermon on the Mount speak specifically to the issue of denying oneself and taking up your cross and following it? I mean, I would assume that Jesus's message in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 to 7 that we have taken as kind of the principle of the easy yoke or the abundant life or what it meant to go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, that the Sermon on the Mount is sort of an encapsulated form of the Christian life. And, And we've suggested in the weeks previous that this is inclusive of all followers of Jesus Christ, not of an elite group, not of a sort of uh, special uh, Green Beret um, Rangers kind of um, element of the Christian faith, but rank and file, us ordinary believers are living under that easy yoke, living into the Sermon on the Mount. So what I did uh, was to spend hours early in the week that I knew I wouldn't have later in the week, was to look at the sermon in its entirety in the light of this issue of self-denial. And one of the other things that we've been doing in our study of the Sermon on the Mount was to understand it in relationship to the 21st century as opposed to the 1st century. So it's heard different with different ears now. Um, In an age that in many parts of the country, especially that I've lived in, starting almost with the axiom that there is no transcendent meaning. There is only this imminental life, the immediate life, the temporal life, the material life. Death does end all. And some of our leading innovators and entrepreneurs and popularizers within our culture uh, affirm that with a certain aplomb. You know, that, yeah, life, life ends at death and that's it. So, you know, live it to the full. Um, So with that in mind, speaking to the 21st century, I wrote this right column, the late modern secular. See on your page, there's three columns. 
The right column, the late modern secular, is kind of how one would respond first up to the Beatitudes. And then the typical religious, the left column, or the first column, kind of the religious response. Tim Keller is well known for advocating that you have, uh, there's really three ways that one is communicating the, the gospel today into three realms. There's the religious response, there's the secular response, and then there is the biblical Christian response. You cannot assume that the typically religious response is the same as the Christian response, and it certainly isn't the same as the secular response. So let me illustrate this. You see the first column. It's a shame it's in 11 font. Uh, I'm getting to the point where I like 12 font. But let me read the typically typical religious. In response to the Beatitudes, remember the Beatitudes are blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who... Uh, uh, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This character description, this eightfold character description of an internal, from the inside out, description of the Christian. So the typical religious response, religion cares for the individual's felt needs. Self-esteem is fragile and nurtured with care. Spirituality is shaped by tradition and the spirit of the times. The magisterium of the people guides and motivates the religious consumer. Sermons and religious practices motivate the individual to do better, be better, try harder. Religion is a means of self-justification and self-affirmation. Well, if that's tip the typical religious response, the Beatitudes are directly counter to that. Religion that is self-justifying, trying to be a better person, feeling the duty of showing up and modestly giving and participating and having your you know felt needs met through that. Ten principles for a better marriage. Ten ways to parent more effectively. But that is sort of the sum total of kind of what religion does for you is very different from the Beatitudes. Now compare the typical religious to the late modern secular. Okay, I'm reading from the right column now. The self operates within an imminent frame. In other words, there is no transcendent significance or purpose and is tasked with creating and articulating meaning. In the late modern age, it is left to you to create and invent meaning. Meaning isn't a gift that you receive. Meaning is something that you generate, you create. The source of the moral order is the self. There is no transcendent meaning or purpose. Principles such as tolerance, human rights, justice, mutual benefit are the product of social convention. The will to power is subversive, tamed, respectable, and enlightened. So I'm saying that instead of the kind of bold and blatant Nazi kind of uh, Nietzsche will to power in the late modern, secular, late modern age, the will to power is subversive, it's tamed, it's respectable, it's enlightened. Uh, but it's nevertheless far different from what's described in the Beatitudes. Now let's read the middle column. Then I'll, I'll open it up. And hopefully I'll stop talking and you'll start talking. And give me a break. The middle column. 
Jesus' beatitudes sweep aside religious platitudes and secular principles. The gospel puts an end to self-justification, self-pity, and self-sufficiency, self-indulgence, and self-centeredness. That's what the Beatitudes do. The focus is on the mercy of God who transforms the person in community. In Christ, the disciple is wholeheartedly devoted to the will of God in daily living. So that initial character description of the disciple has three different ways you can react. The typically religious, the late modern secular, and what I would see the cross-bearing self-denial, what it's going to take to take up your cross and follow him. What do you think? Just the principle of um, kind of working within my own domain here. So I really could, I'd invite people saying, I don't see this. I don't see that. Or do you see this? And like respond I've to that. that uh, and I don't know where the, the idea that the Beatitudes are a, a charge to his inner circle disciples on how they should conduct themselves. <clears throat> Is that completely wrong? I think so. <laughs> to be perfectly blunt. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't I think. Th- so yeah, I don't think it's to the elite or to the inner group, Peter, James, and John, or even just to the 12, I think it's to all disciples the Beatitudes are given, uh, the Sermon on the Mount is given. And the crowd overhears this. It's a little bit like this morning. The crowd overhears the command to take up your cross and follow to the disciples. Uh, But it's a completely different orientation to self, these Beatitudes. I mean, there's a religious self-centeredness and there is a secular kind of self-centeredness. And the Beatitudes underscore a principle of self-denial because of the gospel, because of the mercy of God. We don't have to self-justify. We are justified by what God in Christ has done. Doug, isn't the typical religious sort of uh, the Joel Osteen principle? I mean, um, where... The sermons and the practices and trying to motivate he's trying to motivate you to do better by, and be better by trying harder and you can do it it's all up to you rather than obviously it's not all up to you right it puts the burden on oneself which is so difficult which in both categories the, the secular as well as the religious the onus falls on the self um, to make something of themselves religiously or secularly. Uh, The only place where it's you're at the end of your rope and you'll continue to be at your end of the rope and you're dependent on me, the Lord says. That's what it means, I think, to be blessed. uh, The blessing on the poor is spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You've come to the end of yourself and therefore are dependent upon God. So does Joel Osteen fit into this category of kind of popular American religion? Yeah, I think so. Uh, old crusty Episcopalianism does too. I mean, you, you're going to have both uh, under that category. Uh, stodgy Presbyterianism fits in there. Uh, flaky Baptist uh, background, flake, you know, fits in there. 
uh, we'll find ourselves uh, in the religious traditions in there. I have a question about your sentence that says the, on the right-hand side under late modern secular, uh-huh. the will to power is subversive, tamed, respectable, and enlightened. Can you talk about that? Well, when Nietzsche talks about the will to power, there is such a blatant, aggressive nature to it. You know, there's there's either the it's kind of like the law of the jungle. Uh, there's the the hunted, the prey, and the hunter. And uh, we shouldn't weep when the tiger rips apart his prey. Nietzsche says. So there's a kind of aggressiveness uh, to that. I think uh, Hitler's National Socialist Party and Nazism was an aggressive version of the will to power. Uh, I don't think that in our daily life, those who are yet practicing the will to power are doing it with that kind of... I just wonder if it's just barely beneath the surface, though. If there's, in our human nature, it's a thin veneer that we cover it over. Otherwise, I I think you're denying what's really in all of us, or in me. (laughs) Well, I hope there's... uh, I mean, we're all sinners, but I... um, one of the, yeah, the, Fran, you raise a really interesting thing that I have with Anglicans. Maybe it's time to go. Sorry, move on. No, 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 no. I'm glad you brought that up. I, I wouldn't mind getting adrenaline pumping somewhere in the room. Um, it's that. There's a strong sense of, you know, we are miserable sinners. And we need to confess that daily, weekly. But I am after something that I think Jesus was also after. I mean, I'm after because Jesus was after it, I think. That we really are changed. Mm-hmm. And so, if, if you see a hint of the will to power in me, you should confront and hold me accountable for that. Mm-hmm. And by the power of the Spirit of God, I hope I hope my children don't see it. I hope my wife doesn't see it. I hope uh, non-believers that I hobnob with don't see that kind of will to power. So I see the will of power being crushed <laughs> under the beatitude convictions. Right, I'm talking about the right-hand column. So. Right, but you, you put yourself in there, and you're not in there. That's that's what I'm reacting to is that we not level it. Mm-hmm. There's re- these are really dis- kind of distinct mm-hmm. categories. Does that make sense? What I'm right. saying? Yes, it does. Right. That's what I'm. That's what I mean. That's what I'm getting at. And I'm saying that now that looks really courteous, but it's not. It's become acceptable. It's the way we operate. Um, it's kind of almost the professional etiquette. Um, I'm not sure that's the rule anymore. I, I, I sort of think it's crumbling. Well, you, you are suggesting that it's becoming more blatant mm-hmm. 
more obvious, more dog-eat-dog among the rank-and-file, ordinary people. If you were I, only talking about the right-hand column, uh -huh. I think that's well, and I don't. I see that as uh, not contradicting. I guess I don't see that as contradicting, but reading it, it, it in its trajectory. Okay. You're right in the sense that uh, it is coming more, becoming more commonplace that people speak out in a Nietzsche mm -hmm. kind of way. I'm right. You mm -hmm. just have to accept it and live mm -hmm. with it, you know. Mm -hmm. But I also think we still have the subversion. Like it's all in the small print, mm -hmm. you know, it's hidden, subversive. Mm -hmm. you know, I think we have both now. Mm -hmm. And don't you think here in the South, especially, we have a kind of blend of the typical religious and the late modern secular, and they kind of converge? They're sort of put in the blender, and you get both. Um, I had the privilege this week of having lunch with uh, two pastors of two of the largest churches in, in Birmingham. And they're both, um, one's my age and one's a little older, but they've done all of their time in the South, all of it in the South. And they're connected to governors and to congressmen and to senators. Um, and I realize that where I've served and where Christians strong Christians are rarely connected like that. Um, and you know, they're, they're a minority that's outside of the scope of public influence, whereas here they still are connected to that public influence. So they're a lot more optimistic than I am. You know, I feel we're more in First Peter territory, resident aliens, outcasts, we got to learn how to charitably live with that without being angry and resentful. They're still at the point of we can influence the leverages of power through Christian witness. These are great brothers in Christ. I, I, I went away respecting how much they knew and understood uh, about the word and all that. I, uh, but I just realized that our backgrounds were quite different. I'm oriented to really being the alien in 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 the university and in in the academy as well as in social life um, by being in San Diego principally for most of my pastoral ministry. Good question. Yeah. Moving on, the commands. Uh, remember after, just here, You've got eight Beatitudes. After the Beatitudes, you have a twofold description, two metaphors. You're the salt of the, of the earth. You're the light of the world. And then Jesus says, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. I, I came to fulfill every jot and tittle of the law. And so don't think that I'm, I'm trashing the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. No, I'm fulfilling that. And then he launches into these commands. You've heard it said but I say to you. And to me, that's an interesting sort of, you've heard it said in the first horizon of the Sermon on the Mount was clearly the explicit statement of the law. You've heard the law of God. But now, you've heard it said, 
has kind of this religious qualification of the law and this secular dismissal of the law and any number of variety of things that are said in the culture. So these are the commands, these um, eight commands. And how do they relate? Well, here's the typical religious. Religion reflects the spirit of the times. Self-esteem and personal affirmation are the guiding principles for spirituality and ethics. The idealism of Jesus's ethic is tempered by conventional morality and practical realities. An external moral code governs human interaction for the benefit of the society. So I get a call from a friend yesterday. He's a surgeon in Toronto. He was a friend back in the days when, in the 80s when we played chess uh, over lunch at the University of Toronto. And he calls me up and he says, Doug, do you know what is meant by progressive Christianity? And by that, as he went on to explain, progressive Christianity is that spirit of Christianity that is tied to the times and adjusts so that gay marriage. And he was calling me up, how can I stay in this church that now is approving gay marriage? Uh, and they call it progressive Christianity. And you know, I would put that in the typical religious category self-esteem, personal affirmation, guiding principles, for, and the idealism of Jesus uh, tempered by the conventional morality and the practical realities of the culture we live in today. Now compare that to the late modern secular. The late modern order is self-authorizing and self-authenticating. Because when it comes down to it, the only person that can judge what is true, what is right for you, is you. There is no universal, absolute um, understanding that stands over against you. It's you, and the burden falls on you to articulate your values. The values of the secular age, such as tolerance, consent, mutual benefit, human rights, freedom, human flourishing, democracy, equality, are abstract ideals that, that find their source in the self. Society is made up of self actualizing individuals held together by the sociability of strangers. And an icon for that point of view, as I pointed out early in our study, was Anthony Bourdain. He epitomizes that philosophy of life. Um, and it's just interesting to hear you know, his colleagues, who wouldn't want to be Anthony Bourdain? Uh, the freedom um, uh, that uh, he uh, constantly practiced, and yet that raised, you know, and I, I didn't, and I think we've also talked about this before. I didn't see it until my son framed it this way. He said, suicide now is not only a mental health issue, it's a metaphysical issue. And by that, a metaphysical issue means that it's because my life may be just great. I may be sensible and intelligent and highly successful, but when it comes right down to it, this is all there is. I have nothing else. There's nothing larger than me. And I am the, the self-defining notion of reality and meaning and significance. Anthony Bourdain did not kill himself because of mental illness. And the guy who took the plane up in Seattle and flew around. This is what ensued with the conversation with my son. A 29-year-old who was well-liked, married, 
apparently enjoying life, but all of a sudden ends his life. I guess I was a broken person, something to that effect, he said. It's not only a mental health issue, but it is a metaphysical issue. And I think we will see more people at the top of their game taking their life because they've gotten to the top and realized it wasn't all that great to begin with. This was one of the things personally, and this is an aside, sorry I'm interrupting myself, is I'm really thankful the Lord gave Virginia and I the opportunity for four years to go back and forth to New York City because it demythologized the center. You know, we live with kind of the, the sense that New York is the center of a lot. Uh, it's where our news issues from um, and uh, our financial center. Um, it's the place where young people are attracted to go because, you know, again, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere type of myth. Um, but I saw the center demythologized. I saw the leveling of exceedingly wealthy people next to poor people in great need, spiritually, and in great devotion to Christ. And it just it took all that ethos out of, out of the center for me to witness it, to see it, to experience it. Well, the middle column, then we'll talk. Uh, the law of God sends us to Christ for salvation, to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. John Stott's statement here uh, is wonderful. It comes out of his uh, work on the Sermon on the Mount. The law of God sends us to Christ for salvation, to be justified, and Christ sends us back to the law to be sanctified. So the law really does have a significant place in the light of the gospel. Jesus revealed the radical nature of life without hate, love without lust, marriage without infidelity, truthfulness without dishonesty and deception, justice without revenge, reconciliation without animosity. And the source of these commands are not grounded in the isolated, buffered self. Let me explain the buffered self. Um, Charles Taylor in his book, The Secular Age, says that in the past, people were porous. They were open. They were open to the reality of God, open to the transcendence, open to revelation, open to a law that stood out with authority beyond the self. They were porous. They were open. Now we have the buffered self. There is... Um, something separating us and, and, uh, and sort of protecting us from outside influences. There is no God. There is no law. It's just me. And so uh, the source of these commands are not grounded in the isolated, buffered self, but in the will of God. And since we are created in God's image, they have a resonance with our being that is innate within us. Now, there's a constant struggle between the sinful, depraved, self, the heart deceitful above all else, as Jeremiah says, but there's also that sense of residency with who we were meant to be, who we were created to be. So again, self-denial applied in terms of my submission to the will of God rather than the rejection of it. 
rather than a religious kind of progressive reinterpretation of it in the light of the spirit of the times or the late modern secular dismissal of it all. Comments, questions? If we had a lot of time and a lot of discussion, I know I think we could well illustrate these uh, various uh, descriptions. Doug, does, uh, should we, is it wrong to uh, have a feeling or take the position that the Beatitudes, in fact, uh, in a sense, replaced the law, and that, that those beatitudes now, in fact, are representative of the law that we have through Christ. You know, I, I wouldn't say that they replace the law. Let's say, let's say, yeah, that's wrong. I shouldn't say. Let's say the law is the. Let's say the Ten Commandments are something of the summation of the law. And I think the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes really integrate and coexist in a beautiful way. Uh, Augustine tried really hard, the early church father, to uh, compare the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes. Uh, because you take the first commandment that you shall have no other gods before me. Compare that to blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And right away, we know that we struggle with other gods and not putting God first and usually putting ourselves first. And the beatitude is a kind of response to that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they've humbly realized that they need help and they need redemption um, and they're, they're at the end of their rope. Uh, and so I see them more as an integration. Um, and again, Jesus, the beatitudes are a beautiful way of talking about the fulfillment of the law through this uh, relationship now that we have with God because we really do, we're, we're conscious of our sinfulness. We're, consciousness, we're conscious of our dependence upon God. Uh, we're conscious of the need to submit to the will of God in order to ch achieve his purposes. Uh, it seems to me that when Christ said he came to fulfill the law, not to destroy the law, that what he was saying was, I came to help you understand the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is what is really meaningful. An, an example of that being uh, to get the ox out of the ditch on Sunday, on the Sabbath, you know. Now that's breaking the law, but it's the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. And that goes throughout Christ's ministry, I think, is helping us understand what God would want us to do, not what the written law is by humans. Humans interpret and put down laws, but the spirit of the law is what really is the right. Meaning of and what the beatitudes is what helps us blend that with an acknowledgement that at the center of that discussion of the meaning of the law is the cross and the atoning sacrifice of Christ, dealing with. Uh, our inherent depraved rebellion from that law. Because apart from that, then we can't grasp the meaning of the law that Jesus institutes for us. Um, and this, do you see where this applies to cross-bearing? I've talked about in the message that um, it's not only believing in the cross and the salvation of Christ, 
but now it is a transformative impact on how we live life. Um, so we understand the spirit of the law. Um, sure. Other comments? About quarter two. It seems to me that that the Beatitudes tie in with Jesus saying that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. In other words, self-denial on the surface seems like you're giving up everything, but actually you gain Mm -hmm. an abundant life through living this life. Right. And Charles, that's a great point for us to end on. Because which category do you want to live life? The typical religious, the late modern secular, or the nature of cross-bearing self-denial? And John 10, I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. The way to that is, I think, that middle column of description. The Beatitudes, the commands, the imperatives, the devotions, all of those are worked out in the Sermon on the Mount in such a way as to be life-fulfilling, life-enriching. Everything from truthfulness to fidelity uh, to the way we uh, respect the sanctity of the person, all of these things uh, are now not left up for grab or for self-interpretation, but they're given to us by God in Christ. I want to say one more thing. I think your typical religious column is is very much like the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the modern secular is more like the atheists and the hardened agnostics. I would agree with that. <laughs> right. In um, the middle is Christ. In the middle is Christ. Um, but it's a middle with Christ that's worked out. This is the thing. There's. It's not just coming to Jesus. It's following Jesus into these truths, into these commitments, by his grace, by his gospel. The work just begins. We in the, in the West here, we put so much emphasis on the beginning of the Christian life. The ancient Christians put a lot of emphasis on faithfulness to the end, all the way through. Lord God, thanks for this time. Pray for... Uh, the service to follow, and for my sisters and brothers in Christ moving into this week. May you guide them um, by your word and by your spirit. In the name of Christ, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.